Welcome to Strictly Facts, a guide to Caribbean history and culture, hosted by me, Alexandria Miller. Strictly Facts teaches the history, politics, and activism of the Caribbean and connects these themes to contemporary music and popular culture. Welcome to another episode of Strictly Facts, a guide to Caribbean history and culture. I'm your host, Alexandria, and following up on our last episode, I'll be talking about the Caribbean diaspora. When I think of the influence of the Caribbean across the world, I think of some of the major hubs for Caribbean life, like Miami, New York, and Toronto. I also think of the legacy of colonialism, so places like London, which would literally not exist if not for the migration of Black people from former and current British colonies. And I also think of smaller populations of West Indians who repatriated to Africa, like the roughly 300 Bayesians who founded Crozierville, Liberia in 1865, or the numbers of Rastafari who have repatriated to Ethiopia since the 20th century. The influence of Caribbean culture can be seen and felt globally, which is historically because of the legacies of colonialism, slavery, and imperialism, but is also due to our creative cultural capital and Black activism. We've also been able to tonuehana make fashion, and that can be seen through networks like the Gullah Geechee people, who live on the coastal lands of Georgia, North and South Carolina, and Florida. Gullah Geechee people have a unique history, in which I think is quite beautifully illustrated through filmmaker Julie Dash's 1991 film, Daughters of the Dust. Also, for any of the 90s babies like me who remember the Nickelodeon show Gullah Gullah Island, this is exactly where and who I'm talking about. The Gullah Geechee Nation is made up of Black indigenous communities from the southern Atlantic coast. As early as the 17th century, West Africans were enslaved on the southern U.S. coast or the Sea Islands and forced to labor on rice, indigo, and cotton plantations. Because of their relative isolation on these islands and coastal plantations, they developed a beautiful, unique culture that has been able to retain many of their African roots and cultural traditions. Gullah Geechee people today are descendants of a number of ethnic groups from West Africa, but it is thought that the term Gullah is derived from Angola, the first group to be forcibly enslaved on these coastal plantations. Since the 20th century, Capitalism and tourism have relatively tried to decimate Gullah lands through resort building and natural resource reserves. Sounds familiar, right? These communities have fought to preserve not only their culture, but also their lands, forming the Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Corridor as a national heritage area in the U.S., with the hopes of, and I quote, to preserve, share, and interpret the history, traditional, cultural practices, heritage sites, and natural resources associated with the Gullah Geechee people, end quote. So after all of this, you may be wondering what the Gullah Geechee connections are to the Caribbean. Well, Gullah Geechee communities have a lot in common with parts of the West Indies, especially Barbados, the Bahamas, and even Cuba. This is most commonly seen through their regional dialects, which linguists have deemed as sister dialects of Atlantic Creole English. Research as early as 1969 and 1980 point to, and I quote, a common 
English pigeon source from the language of slaves taken from Barbados to Suriname, Jamaica, and South Carolina from 1651 to 1670, end quote. These lingual connections are rooted in historical exchanges, especially with close proximity to Barbados and the Bahamas. Also, based on common folklore and practices, researchers have found the Gullah and especially Bahamians have common ancestors in what is now present-day Sierra Leone. Some early colonists and enslaved West Africans came to the Carolina region resettling from Barbados. After over a decade of civil war, English slaveholders pressured the new King Charles II to expand their colonial foothold in the Carolinas in the 1660s. Known as the Lord's Proprietors, eight investors were commissioned to expand the new colony, infusing early laws, culture, and architectural styles from Barbados. Fast forward over a century later, after the American Revolution in the 1780s, many British loyalists and forced African laborers migrated from the U.S. South to the Bahamas, more than doubling the Black population in islands like Nassau by 1788. There were also a growing number of free Black people in the Bahamas as a result of the American Revolution and over the next 40 plus years. Most notably were the Ethiopian Regiment, a military group composed of roughly 300 self-emancipated Africans who earned their freedom after fighting for the British and later migrated to the Bahamas after the war. Later on, in 1842, when Spain relinquished Florida to the U.S. after the Second Seminole War, some Native Americans and Africans formed the Seminoles, relocated to Cuba and the Andros Islands in the Bahamas. With such intersecting histories, it's clear that the Caribbean Gullah Geechee connection starts with common ethnic ancestry in Africa to exchanges and movements of people in the colonized Atlantic world. When it comes to the early Caribbean influence in the U.S., one place comes to mind, Louisiana. Like much of the Caribbean, Louisiana's history has been strongly influenced by its Black and Native populations, as well as its complicated colonial history. Before becoming an official part of the United States in 1803, Louisiana had been previously colonized by France and Spain. Though the French are mostly recognized for their influence on Louisiana, we cannot talk about Louisiana without also talking about Haiti. What was then known as Saint-Domingue, Haiti had a history of anti-slavery rebellions throughout the 18th century, even before the revolution. The island was seen as a major threat to all colonial projects. Spain had even issued a royal decree in May 1790 prohibiting the entry of Black people from the French West Indies into Louisiana because of this history. Haiti was amidst its revolution in the 1790s when thousands of white and free people of color fled Haiti for New Orleans and Cuba, also forcibly taking enslaved Africans with them. Haiti's potential and eventual success as the first Black Republic over the next 13 years threatened the elite, as they feared Haitian insurgents would, and I quote, propagate dangerous doctrines among the local and enslaved groups, or the Negroes at the time, end quote, according to lawmakers. A similar migration to Cuba occurred between 1800 and 1809. However, 
when the Peninsular War between France and a unified Spain and Portugal began, thousands of Haitians were expelled from Cuba, moving to the southern U.S., especially to Louisiana. By 1809, Louisiana's population doubled to a majority Black population. And don't worry, we know this is just a brief introduction to Haiti and that doesn't do the island justice whatsoever. We're saving a more detailed history of the Haitian Revolution for another episode. Caribbean migration to other parts of the U.S. occurred much later. In New York, Caribbean immigration began in the late 1880s and increased exponentially over the 20th century. This growing Caribbean population also birthed Caribbean institution building, especially Caribbean mutual aid societies like the Sons and Daughters of Barbados or the Trinidad Benevolent Association, which were geared at socially and financially supporting new migrants. One of the most critical movements of Black art and thought in U.S. history and New York history specifically is the Harlem Renaissance. During the 1920s, Harlem was a center for Black life across the African diaspora, with African Americans relocating north during the early part of the Great Migration. The decade marked massive growth of Black creation, a prime period for renowned figures in Black history today. Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston in literature, Duke Ellington and Louis Armstrong in jazz, and Gertrude Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith in the blues, just to name a few. The Harlem Renaissance created the idea of the New Negro, a term that skyrocketed after writer Alan Locke's book of the same name. The Harlem Renaissance was a period of unabashed racial pride that challenged the overtly racist American system. Critical artists and theorists also embraced different political ideologies, including socialism and communism. Though often overlooked, the Harlem Renaissance gave rise to a number of West Indian thinkers, most prominently being Jamaican-born poet Claude McKay, whose poem, If We Must Die, was widely known in response to white terrorism in 1919. Writers Eric Walrand, Arthur Schomburg, and Cyril Briggs were others, born in British Guiana, or present-day Guyana, Puerto Rico, and Nevis of St. Kitts and Nevis. Briggs was just one of a large number of activists during the Harlem Renaissance, dedicated to Pan-Africanism and even founding the African Blood Brotherhood. These activist and artistic networks were also centers for inter-Caribbean unity. Eric Walron's major claim, for instance, came from his tenor as an associate editor of the newspaper The New Negro, one of the most important publications of the Harlem Renaissance, founded by Jamaican-born pan-activist Marcus Garvey. Garvey also formed the United Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League, an organization built on Black pride and Black nationalism. A noteworthy part of the Harlem Renaissance is also the countless Caribbean women who made their marks in history. The legacies of women like writer and UNI leader Amy Jacques Garvey and communist organizer Hermina Hiswoud are often overshadowed by their well-known husbands. Born in Kingston, Jamaica, Garvey was a writer and publisher and played a key role in women's organization in the UNA and continued to advocate for 
for Black nationalism throughout her lifetime. Hermina Hiswoud, like Walrond, was born in British Guiana and married Otto Hiswoud, born in Dutch Guiana, or present-day Suriname. In addition to being the wife of a charter member of the Communist Party, Hiswoud's writings are an important contribution to leftist beliefs. She also wrote Women I Have Personally Known, a series of biographical portraits on women she met throughout her lifetime. Overall, the Caribbean legacy of New York is deeply deep-rooted, and although we've only briefly glanced over a small portion of key figures, one thing is certain. We have certainly made our impact all over the world. Speaking of impacts, the one key part of Caribbean migration I'd be remiss not to mention is the Windrush generation. Sadly, the Windrush generation is most widely known because of the 2018 Windrush scandal in England. But decades before that, first arriving in June 1948, over a thousand passengers from the British West Indies boarded the Empire Windrush and migrated to England. A key piece of this story is that these migrants were born during a time when places like Jamaica, Trinidad and Tobago, and Guyana were British colonies, making them Commonwealth citizens and them being guaranteed citizenship under the 1948 British Nationality Act. They migrated at the British government's appeal to help fill labor shortages after World War II. In fact, many Caribbean men had been soldiers for Britain during the war. West Indian-born migrants are the reason the UK was able to rebuild. But in true colonial fashion, the racism and hardships they faced were overwhelming. Even so, the generation of Black Britons and their progeny made history in the UK. Like Jamaican-born Dr. Oliver Lysite, who helped found the National Testament Church of God, Trinidadian Calypsonian Aldwin Lord Kitchener Roberts, or writer and psychotherapist Beryl Gilroy, who was the first Black head teacher of London, born in British Guiana. Despite their major contributions to post-World War II British Reconstruction, members of the Windrush generation were labeled as, and I quote, illegal immigrants, forcibly detained, and some of whom were even deported beginning in 2017, which the British government later apologized for the following year. Despite this unmistakable insult, the Caribbean imprint on the UK is undeniable and continues to grow to this day. Boyago, stay tuned for Strictly Fact Sounds, where we connect our history to popular culture. For this segment of Strictly Fact Sounds, we highlight major works that show the effects of colonialism and imperialism at home and abroad. First, we have the 1948 song, London is the Place for Me, by Aldwin Roberts, otherwise known as Lord Kitchener. Roberts composed the song aboard the Empire Windrush from Jamaica to London, even performing the first two stanzas at the Tilbury docks upon his arrival. His song reflects the imposed colonial teachings that upheld Britain's power in the mindset of its colonial subjects. Second, we have the Honorable Louise Bennett's poem, Colonization in Reverse. This poem has been so widely regarded across the Caribbean that generations of students have had to learn, memorize, and even perform this poem in schools, including our very own producer, Carrie Ann. 
Miss Lou's poem counters the message of London is a place for me by highlighting the truth of colonialism in the British Empire and empires across the world. For more information on the Windrush generation, you can also check the BBC documentary, The Unwanted, The Secret Windrush Files. As always, you can find a list of Strictly Facts sounds online on our Strictly Facts syllabus. Thanks for tuning in to Strictly Facts. Visit strictlyfactspodcast.com for more information from each episode. Follow us on Strictly Facts Pod on Instagram and Facebook and Strictly Facts PD on Twitter.